to the Corinthians. So the New Testament starts with the four Gospels, the historic book of Acts. Then come the letters, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So it's in the New Testament, about the middle of the New Testament by length. 2 Corinthians, we're finishing chapter 8 this morning. While you're turning, let me welcome any who are watching our live stream or uh, looking up the video at a later time. God bless you for seeking out God's word. May he meet you and may his word be a blessing to you. We invite you to be with us here at Clifton Park Community Church to join us in song and in prayer and in fellowship for the good of your soul. Let me read God's word this morning from chapter 8 beginning of verse 16 through the end of the chapter as Paul continues writing about uh, uh, these things to that ancient church and to us. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal but being himself very earnest He is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Uh, what Paul is talking about is how he is going to handle the big offering, the big collection that they've collected. It's a big one. And he mentions three men that are going to be handling that collection. And he explains to the Corinthians not only that they should continue their plans to participate, but why he picked these three men and what's important about the whole process. So in one measure, the sermon is about money, a lot of money. It's believed, we don't know the sum involved here, but it must have been quite large. And in the ancient days, you couldn't just Venmo someone or get a cashier's check or send it by registered mail. Somebody had to take the sacks of coins. I remember how incredibly impressed I was at a, at a major offering back in 1988. I was in seminary. And uh, John Piper and the church had asked me to help coordinate this thing called a concert of prayer. Don Bryant was coming to Minneapolis. We rented the Metrodome at the time. We had over 300 churches coming and over 60 buses uh, that were coming to the parking. And this is much before the days of a lot of computers. We orchestrated this. So all these people, I don't know, we ended up maybe nine or 10, 11,000 people. 
they took an offering in these big plastic buckets. And there's a special room in the, in the bowels of the metrodome that's gone now, but, and it had a large round table. It would, it would not fit in the front of this room very easily. And around it, there were maybe 18 people, and the buckets were dumped on the table, and a mountain of cash, coins, and checks were received in that offering. And it was counted. To this day, I can just see buckets and buckets going into this mountain. And I'm thankful we had a policeman at the door who we hired to be there. He was a Christian. I don't remember how much was counted. I stepped away from that. I had someone designated to oversee that, one of the men from the church. But it just amazed me how much money was received in that offering. And I was glad there were a lot of people to be responsible over it. Paul has a similar care with what's going on here. And the way he couches it and talks about it, we see some important principles for ministry. Whether you're a treasurer in the church or not, whether you're a leader in the church or not, whether you ever help usher and receive the offering or not, there are things here for all of us to see and to know. And if we hadn't been working through the book sequentially, expositing the whole book in order, we could skip over passages that made us uncomfortable. But we take up the whole counsel of God. And so here we are today. We're going to talk just a bit about money this week and next. And I would submit to you as well, one of the most important statements Jesus ever made, one of his most important teachings addressed money. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. He just laid it plain out. I'm surprised so many have overlooked what Jesus said. Whether they believed anything else he said, they should have been wise to that. The famous ringmaster of the circus, P.T. Barnum, said, money in some respects is like fire. It is a very excellent servant but a terrible master. Another anonymous writer said, money is like seawater. The more a man drinks, the more thirsty he becomes. So when we're talking about money and ministry, we need these biblical principles and these guiding words. Let's talk about matters of money and ministry as our first heading this morning. And then we'll go on to talk about the character of the men involved in that ministry and come up with some principles as the third heading. First, matters of money and ministry. Uh, The setting here is a collection. Uh, There is a collection going on. And uh, it it started, he was talking about at the very beginning of the chapter, how some gave even beyond their uh, ability. They all gave proportionally, but some gave generously. And instead of calling it a collection, I think the best term is to call it an offering. That's the way the scriptures view this. Because they talk about it even in verse uh, 20, uh, this gift that's administered. It's called a, a, an act of grace in verse 19. Collection seems pretty uh, abysmally secular. Offering gives it the connotation that this is a response. This is an act of worship. And by the way, you'll probably hear me announce the offering on Sundays. I never, ever say, Lord, help me. We are going to take an offering. 
You don't take what is offered. You receive what is offered. That's a footnote. So we're going to call this an offering. It was Paul's plan with the other leaders in the church to help the relief of the Christians in Jerusalem and Judah and uh, Judea. Um, Acts chapter 11 talked about how the church in Antioch was involved. Paul mentioned it back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 concerning the collection for the saints. He uses the word collection there. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something stored up that he may prosper. That the, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. We'll come back to that comment about who carries it. But there was an offering underway, and then there was a concern that arose. It's not just a concern that Paul had. I think any minister who has any fear of God in his soul shares this concern. There's a red-hot danger when it comes to money and ministry. Are people going to think you're in it for the money? There's a friend I met here in Clifton Park. I was trying to invite him to our church, and he said, you just want me to come to your church so you can get my money. He said that to me. He was a Christian, went to a different church, said, hey, we're, we're in your own town. Why go across town? Come to our church. And I knew he seemed to be a man of means. But when he said that, it stung me so much. I, I think my face changed, not quite to anger, but pretty serious. I said, no, I don't. But that's the concern that comes to mind. Pastor Kent Hughes, who's a famous pastor to many other pastors, said Paul knew that few things could destroy his ministry as much as doubts cast upon his integrity in matters of money. The concern was that people might think Paul was enriching himself. So in this letter, previously in chapter 2, Paul had written in verse 17... We are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. In the background of what he's already written in this letter is this refrain, this theme, I'm not in it for the money. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2, as he was making his plea for a better relationship, he said, make room in your hearts for us, We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. Paul's reminding them of the truth. He wasn't in it for the money. He didn't defraud anyone or make off with the money. And more importantly, he he gets right to the point in chapter 11. Later on, we haven't gotten to chapter 11 in our series of sermons yet, but let's take a quick, quick look ahead. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 7, Paul will bring it up then as he gets close to the end of his letter. He said, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches, he's speaking metaphorically, by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you, Corinthians, in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. So Paul writes, 
And why? Because I, because I do not love you? God knows I do, verse 12. And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. Paul's defense will continue on in that later chapter of this letter because he has that concern. The rumors are out there. And Paul bring it up again in chapter 12 of this letter. You get the point. There was a concern and a real concern over the money matters. Paul Barrett says, no one knew better than Paul that his initiative in instituting the collection would lay him open to the accusations that the money was destined for his pocket. That's the way the world thinks. Skeptics think. Christians do have to be careful, even with other believers. Um, I I read this week, uh, uh, it didn't happen recently, but a church set up a sting operation because one of the ushers and one of the men counting the offering was taking about $200 cash every week for years. And they set up a sting, the police caught it, and they had to prosecute him. Here, Paul takes precautions. What are the precautions? Primarily, his precaution is to delegate this to three trustworthy guys. So he is not touching the money. I like that principle. His precautions were foretold back in 1 Corinthians 16, that last verse 3 that we read. He said, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul's sending three men now with this letter to, to bring the offering and to have them add to it. And then when, when they're done in Corinth, Corinth is going to add a few more uh, envoys, trustees, and they're going to get it to Jerusalem. And, and we read in, in Acts, um, I guess it's Acts 20, verse 4, by the time the envoys arrive at Jerusalem, there are seven men attending to that large sum of money. It was a huge bestowment, by the way, not from Caesar, from the other churches. Churches helping churches, Christians helping Christians in the private sector. So those precautions were laid in place. And the purpose Paul lays out for these precautions and for the offering itself Here in our text, chapter 8, verses 19, 20, and 21, he talks about the purpose of all this. He says at the end of 19, uh, for the glory of God himself and to show our goodwill. We will take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. What is his aim? It's twofold. He wants to have Christians helping other Christians, which is appropriate. If you've received the grace of God, you need to be gracious and generous. That was the previous sermon from the early part of the chapter. He says that's still in place. This is, he says explicitly in verse 19, giving is an act of grace. Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord and the strength he provides. What's in your hands to give, to be steward of, 
prayerfully dispense it in whatever ways the Lord directs. Pay your bills, provide for your own, and be generous with the people of God. That's one of the purposes, but he says explicitly it's for the glory of God. And he wants all to see that this is honorable and upright. He wants it to pass muster not only with the Lord, but with others who are watching. So he has set precautions in place. Let's talk about the three men that he has uh, here. Uh, The three that he is appointing to this uh, committee, if you will call it that. Um, He starts out in verse 16 talking about Titus. Titus is is pretty well known to us. He's been talking about Titus quite a bit. Chapter 7, chapter 8. He says in verse 16, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. So Paul is going to be sending Titus. And Titus has just come back from Corinth, hasn't he? We read at the very end of chapter 8, chapter 7, because Paul's rejoicing. Oh, I've heard that my letters are working and that things are going okay in Corinth. Titus had brought back that news uh, in the middle of verse 13. We are comforted. Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proven true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Titus had been to Corinth. He was known to them. They kind of fell in love. Well, we like this young guy, Paul. Thanks for sending him. He's a blessing to us. We blessed him. He's on his way. And Titus, he just doesn't come back and say, mission accomplished, what's next? He says, oh, I loved it. I can't wait to go back to Corinth, Paul. He had those people in his heart. He is like Paul. That's what he says. He has the same earnest care I have for you. We'll talk about the word earnest in just a minute. But he was like Paul. And we all know that Paul bled and died for the churches he served. So Titus is on this team to oversee the offering. Um, and he's, uh, he's going to preach there as well. It's interesting, when you think of the name Titus, uh, do you think of anything else? Wasn't there a, a book of the Bible that's called Titus? What's that about? Was that by Titus? No, that's Paul's letter to Titus. When Titus was in Crete, and I think it comes in the timeline, Corinthians would be around 57 AD. The letter to Titus when he's in Crete is probably three or four years later in the early 60s. We're not sure. They didn't date stamp their letters. But Titus goes on to have his own ministry in Crete, and boy, was that a handful. And so Paul writes to Titus in that first chapter. He says a couple of things. Uh, at the beginning of the letter to describe Titus. He said, At the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders. He goes on. He writes to Titus, Titus is a quality partner. Almost at the level of an apostle, but not one of the apostles. 
The theme of that letter Paul would write to Titus is interesting. The theme is the inseparable link between faith and practice, between belief and behavior. He'll talk about the faithful word and how he's to exhort people. In chapter 3, Paul will write to Titus in that letter, uh, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We'll come back to that expression, good works. These things, Paul said, are excellent and profitable for people. He sends Titus. Titus is the first guy on this team of three. Who's the next guy? We don't know his name. What about the third guy? We don't know his name. So you should see my notes. I've got bro two and bro three in my notes this week. We don't know their names. Uh, And some people have given them names. They call the first one the famous brother. And the second one that's unknown, the earnest brother. Who's this famous brother? What's he famous for? Nothing trivial, I can tell you that. He didn't have a viral video on TikTok or a tweet or this flash-in-the-pan celebrity that most kids and young adults today think is something. Fame? I don't know how to put it down. We have a celebrity culture in America. Probably needs a whole nother sermon. People famous for what? Well, those who care for sick children in the night, those who comfort widows, those who make the hard decisions and work extra jobs. to All the, the people that are truly doing good works are not famous. I digress. This brother was famous. Where do we get that from? Let's look at our text. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's talked about sending Titus. Um, and here, uh, we're picking it up in verse 18. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Now, where is Paul when he's writing this? What churches is he talking about? Well, probably Paul's in Philippi. And there in Macedonia, the churches that were impoverished, think of Haiti or think of the backwoods of some uh, state, uh, the U.S. that has poverty. He's in the poor neck of the woods. And he's writing about this brother who's famous there, and he's famous for his preaching of the gospel. We don't know who it is. We just know he's famous for something really important. Paul was pretty famous. You remember that? Even the the demons had heard about Paul. They're they're taking on somebody else. We've heard of Jesus. We've heard of Paul. We don't know who you are. Paul was famous, this brother was famous, and would be known in Corinth. But he's not named here. Paul just leaves that as it is. They'll they'll meet him and then they'll say, oh, you're the guy. Historically, many people think it was Luke. Luke who had been a companion of Paul. Luke who would later write uh, not only the, the book of Acts, but his own gospel. The gospel according to Luke. 
And one has surmised that if you can write a gospel, you can probably preach the gospel. But we don't know who it was. And it was someone who didn't seek that fame, but seek to be faithful. The third brother in this team that was going to supervise the offering from Paul carrying it forward to Corinth, this third unnamed brother is nicknamed the earnest brother. Let's see how he's described, this third brother on the team taking the offering. Um, And not only that, um, oh, okay, the famous brother, I didn't finish. Another important point in verse 19. Not only that, but he, the famous brother, has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry this act of grace. Appointed, that, that word has to do with the raising of hands. So there was likely a vote. So from this area, Paul says, we're going to move the offering further on. It's going to go to Corinth and eventually to Jerusalem. Who do you want from your locale to go? And they voted. The local church had a say. This isn't just Paul flexing his apostolic muscles, picking people that he likes. People had an esteem for the famous brother. And so he was appointed. And he was doing this to be honorable. Verse 22, and with them... With Titus and brother two, they send brother three. We are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. What do we know about brother three? I'll tell you what we know and what we don't know, and then I'll give you my guess. Uh, We know that he's earnest. What does that mean to be earnest? The dictionary says Showing sincere and intense conviction to be earnest. And sometimes the dictionary uh, definition leaves you just still wanting more so you can click on a different tab or turn to your thesaurus and look up words that are related. Does everybody know what a thesaurus is? I hope you do. This earnestness, at least in the English language, could also mean serious, serious-minded, solemn, Grave, sober, steady, intense, committed, dedicated, assiduous, keen, zealous, industrious, hardworking, studious, thoughtful, cerebral, deep, profound. That's what the thesaurus says. And in a footnote, it gives a few antonyms to earnest, frivolous, and apathetic. Not this guy. He's earnest. He, he stepped forward. He was a candidate. You see, I think what would fit this team? You send the, the, the established, almost apostle-like Titus. You send another brother who's a great preacher and, and kind of a, uh, a popular guy in this region. I think you need to send some muscle. So I think they, they looked at all the muscular men of the church. Who can go and help be a defender? You're carrying a, a large sack of money. But of those who might be the muscle on the team... Paul wanted someone who was tested, who was earnest. So in verse 22, we're sending our brother whom we have often tested. And it doesn't mean feats of strength, but tested his maturity, his commitment to the task, to the commitment to the kingdom work, and found him earnest in many matters. And isn't it interesting that Paul doubles down for this guy? He's not the famous preacher. He's not Titus. He's a nobody, they might think. So Paul says, we tested that earnestness, but now he is even more earnest because of his great confidence in you. Maybe he was someone in Philippi who had been in the Corinthian church as well. 
You see, Paul's assembling his team. He's being thoughtful, and he has certain things that are uh, uh, important in these selections. The old preacher of a century ago, James Denny, said in his commentary about these three choices, to commonize these three might be commonplace men. But when Paul looked at them, he saw the dawning of that brightness in which the Lord appeared to him on the way. Paul saw spirituality shining. He saw integrity. He saw earnestness, that diligent focus. So let's conclude this morning by looking at these uh, uh, principles for money in ministry. That's the context here. Notice that Paul hasn't necessarily picked the CPAs or uh, accountants uh, or former tax collectors. We, we don't know. Those aren't the qualities he lists. That may be the case. But what he sees first, the first principle, is spiritual maturity. It needs to be, it needs to be required here, and it apparently is evident in these men. That's the way he starts with Titus. Titus has an apostle's heart for you. He's good on the inside, and he's going willingly because he sees this dangerous mission as spiritually important. The other brother who's famous, he was famous among the churches. Remember, those were days of church planting and missions work, and Christians weren't fully welcome or or appreciated or viewed as safe. The spiritual qualities of the famous brother. And then the third brother who had been tested And found genuine. There was already fruit to his faith. The fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Spiritual maturity seems to be at the top of the list. When picking someone to be close to the money. Many churches over the centuries have found that just putting the businessmen in charge of the money wasn't always the right thing to do. And pray for businessmen. There's, it's, a, it's a hard calling. But spiritual maturity seems to be first and foremost. There's a brother who wrote a book I'll mention later. His name was John Angel James, and I'm sure he used his middle name because it made him a little more memorable than just John James. John Angel James, and that's angel with two L's. He said this, piety, I trust our churches will ever consider piety as the first and most essential qualification in their leaders for which talents, genius, learning, and eloquence would and could be no substitute. Piety. Someday this church will pick a new pastor to be the senior pastor. And I hope you just don't go by looks or eloquence find a man who fears God who holds to God's word to faithfully feed the flock of God spiritual maturity a second principle when dealing with money in ministry is that earnest care must be exercised you've got to have a a clear focus on what's important and and the bottom line wasn't profit The bottom line was the glory of God and the help of believers. Earnest care needs to be exercised. Again, John Angel James, thinking of the ministry at large, said, What else 
Or what less does Jesus Christ say to everyone whom he sends into the work of the Christian ministry than be in earnest? Your heart has to be in it. Some of you have volunteered and held offices in church or done different ministries without getting paid. Your heart needs to be in it. And the fruitfulness of it comes when you do it with love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13. If I have not love, I'm not really doing much. Earnest care needs to be considered. John Angel James wrote a book in 1874. It's uh, mostly out of print. You can find some used copies or photocopies called An Earnest Ministry. In the summer of 1995, I was called from my little church in Rockland, Massachusetts to come to Clifton Park to be the pastor here of this really big facility in the small congregation that was here at the time. 1995, and we found a house to rent in Half Moon, and in the yard there was a hammock. The day we moved was hot, and I'm glad we put up the hammock soon afterwards. And on the summer... Uh, On the Sunday afternoons that summer, I picked up a book I had just gotten in May of that year by John Angel James called An Earnest Ministry. It's not too thin. And I said, I'm starting a new ministry. I need what this man has to say. So that summer in my hammock, I would read and read that book in the afternoons. And I tell you, more often than not, I'd, I'd be excited about the evening service. I'd come and be guided by those steady words about the importance of earnestness. How does John Angel James define it? We had the dictionary earlier. He said this in in ministry application. He said, earnestness implies the selection of some one object of special pursuit and a vivid perception of its value and importance. The earnest man is a man of one idea. And that one idea occupies, possesses, and fills his soul. Oh yeah, he's he's in earnest. We can be in earnest for our favorite sports team. You step on somebody's sports team toes and you'll know it if they're in earnest. But as a Christian, as someone serving the church of Christ, as a pastor, as a deacon, as a treasurer, as an usher, in whatever capacity, is there an earnestness about our labors? This, what I do, is important. It has value and significance. And I'm focused on it. I think Jesus includes those thoughts when he says, whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God. In the kingdom and in the local church, said Francis Schaeffer, there are no little people. They're only members of the body of Christ, each with a purpose. When it comes to those engaged with money, they need to have an earnestness. They need to know what's what and how significant this is. And that this collection is the outflowing of the generosity of those who have been born again by the grace of God. It is, the gifts are called an act of grace. You're not just managing money, but you're representing the gospel and its fruit. Mismanaging the money isn't just poor management. It it brings shame on the gospel. 
and discouragement to the people of God. Oh, earnestness is exercised. And the third principle for money ministry is that the the ministry is done honorably. Honorable actions at all times. Paul specifically names that here, doesn't he? Between naming second brother and third brother, he says, uh, we take this course of action, verse 20, so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in God's sight, but also in the sight of man. What's that word, honorable? Kalos, the word that's commonly used even for the word good. And it occurs in Ephesians 2.10. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God appointed in advance that we should walk in them. Or when we read uh, in, uh, what was the reference earlier, in Peter, good works. Peter 3.8 or 9. Remind those who believe that they might put this into practice and do good works, honorable works. Honorable, good works. Christian, if you didn't know this already, you're saved by grace, but you live to be fruitful with good works. Of course, a lot of people get that backwards. I can't become a Christian until I have enough good works to get in. And and that's what's so amazing about the gospel and Christianity and the kingdom work. You don't need the good works to get in. They would all fall short. There's only one who's good. He died on a cross for sinners such as us. Sinners are invited to receive the grace of God. That great transaction. And the hymn writer says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We're saved when we come to Christ and receive his gift of salvation. But then when we are Christians, as the Holy Spirit fills us, as we are enlightened and told what God wants We go and do, and we do good works. And they're many and varied. And they should be honorable. Local churches need preachers and elders and deacons and trustees that do good work, earnestly. Spiritually minded men. But all Christians are to do good works as well. There's an outflow in that direction. Well, let me mention a couple of takeaways from this morning's sermon, just to underline them. Sometimes repetition is my best ally. Here we go. These are the takeaways. Number one, earnest character is vital in all Christian ministry. Earnest character is vital. We've already talked about John Angel James in his book, in his definition of earnestness. He says in the Christian ministry, in the pulpit, the pastor's earnestness must be for the salvation of souls. And what's great about his writing is he's just not giving us a drill sergeant's marching orders. But in calling Christians to earnestness in the pulpit and in the pew, he says we need to do this as unto the Lord. For our great example of earnestness is Jesus, the Son of God who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the earnest servant Savior. 
The disciples were having an argument of who was the greatest. Jesus rebuked them and then referred to himself and said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You budding apostles, you think it's important who gets to sit at the front and who's in charge? Let me remind you that Christian leaders and Christian followers, as Christ himself said, he came to serve, not to be served. Be wary of any preacher who twists your arm to be served. Any ministry that measures your commitment by how much you give them or serve them. Many things to be said here. We're talking about earnestness in character and Christ, the great example of that. And again, the other closing principles, precautions are most appropriate when it comes to handling money. Take measures in advance. You may say, oh, our church has never had any problems. Well, we should still have church audits. I know practice among churches is they just have one church treasurer visit the other church treasurer without even having to hire somebody. You just get an outsider to check the books. And that's for the the care not only of the church who's giving the money, but the man who's doing his best to keep it and to orchestrate it. We need to have safeguards in place. So if anyone ever asks, oh, yeah, safeguards are in place. Precautions, And part of the precautions are a plurality of people who have an eye on the money. Notice that Paul just didn't send one guy. He didn't just send two. He sends three guys. And with that plurality, it's often good to let some men have distance from the money. Paul seems to have had distance from the money. I think that inspired Kent Hughes to tell us as seminarians back in the Mid-80s in Minneapolis, he said something to the fact that I don't have anything to do with the offerings or the giving. I don't know what any member of my church gives or doesn't give. I am out of that financial loop so that I can freely preach the gospel. I can hold everyone's feet to the fire without worrying about uh, uh, offending the big giver or focusing on the little giver. Some stuff like that, Ken Hughes said to seminarians. And I've been mindful of that. And I am out of the loop. I cannot sign a check at Clifton Park Community Church. I don't have access to the safe. I stay out of the offering cycle. A select few with spiritual maturity oversee that. Praise God. Biblical principles at work. And and we just do well to remind ourselves of those things. But the last reminder is this. Giving and good stewardship are fruits of the gospel. It's hard to measure up to these without the help of God's grace within. And if you experience the grace of God, if you've been born again, if you're a Christian, you want to give, you want to be good stewards. Paul calls this collection, this offering, an act of grace. To whom much is given, much is required. Will you give what you cannot keep to bless those who need blessing and care? Do not show that you have received the grace of God in vain. We'll see next time as well in chapter 9, Paul has a little more to say about money, that God expects us to be givers. He doesn't set the amount. Give to show that you have not received the grace of God in vain. 
because what we're doing with our money now matters for now and for eternity because of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, a Savior from guilt and shame and sin. And we thank you that in Christ we can take up uh, good, good deeds and good works for your glory. That we can give, we can serve, we can go, we can tell others what we know. Bless all our efforts to do good. And may they all be an offering of grace to you, Lord, ultimately. And for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.